0: Well this is Alex Grand. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastian Guidobono, following the adventures of young THAX Tabares, who wields the power of
1: El Fuego. El Fuego.
0: During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico, available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Today, we're proud to have writer, historian, and Marvel and DC Comics continuity policeman, Peter Sanderson. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank
1: you for inviting me.
2: Your birth year was 1952, Massachusetts. Tell me something about your early life.
1: Well, I was born in Milton, Massachusetts. Then my parents moved to Situate, Massachusetts, which is further south along the coast of Massachusetts. And that's where, as a very small child, I first encountered comics. I've been reading comics as far back as I can remember. There was sort of a mom-and-pop store in situate that my mother would take me to, and they had racks and racks of comics. And what I remember is that it was, or at least the ones I remember, were Dell comics. Walt Disney characters, Hanna-Barbera characters, Warner Brothers characters. And I don't remember what the first comic books were that I bought, but I know that the even back then, Even as a small child, I knew that the comics I liked best were the Donald Duck stories and Walt Disney's comics and stories and the Uncle Scrooge stories, which, of course, were all done by Carl Boxer, though I had no idea of his name. Nobody did back then who read comics, but I was able to recognize his very distinctive style, both as a writer and as an artist. Besides that, were you reading—you were a little young for EC Comics— I was too young for EC Comics. I'm not even sure, but let's see. It would be a small child. This would have been in the 50s, but I don't even remember seeing EC Comics. And not mad either? I suspect that this was after the EC Comics, the horror books basically went under.
2: Okay, I see. There Obviously, there were superhero comics. Were you reading I them? I don't remember
1: superhero comics in situate. I do know that after we spent my early years, like when I was in kindergarten in situate, We moved to another location in Milton, where I went to grade school. And I remember that occasionally I would see superhero comics in a store. But I actually sort of felt that they were scary back then. They were drawn in a much more mature style than the the funny animal comics. And I'd see covers like Green Lantern fighting a monster. Or I remember seeing a cover of Hawkman fighting a winged gorilla. I was just put off of them. I thought, like I said, that they were too scary. It wasn't until in 1964, however, that's when I started buying superhero comics. I'm not exactly sure why. It's just that I went to a store that had DCs and I saw a comic that caught my attention and I picked it up and I was immediately hooked. And you want to know which one it was. Yes, It was a copy of World's Finest, which back then was the Superman, Batman team-up book. And the lead story was the origin of the composite Superman. Sure, I know that one. And we were talking before the podcast about characters like Two-Face who have their faces split in half. The composite Superman was one of those. He had his whole body split in half. One side of him looked like Superman, one side of him looked like Batman. I'd certainly seen the Superman Fleischer cartoons on TV, but this was my first exposure to Batman and really didn't know that much about either character. But I think maybe the cover of that issue has composite Superman flying down and looking strange with his half Superman, half Batman, and his green face. And there's a list on the side of the comic book cover saying, this character has the powers of all the Legion of Superheroes. And lists all these Legionnaires. And I thought, oh, what's this? This sounds interesting. So then I read the comic. And like I say, I was hooked immediately. And it was a very unusual comic for the Mort Weisinger era of Superman, because for one thing, Superman and Batman were not triumphant at They basically survived, but they were unable to defeat this character. And the story is really told from the composite Superman's point of view. He is a loser named Joe Beach, who tries to make a reputation for himself as sort of performing stunts in public and keeps having to be rescued by Superman. So he's really jealous of Superman. Superman, of course, is really nice to him and gets him a job as a janitor at the Superman Museum. But this just feeds Nietzsche's resentment of Superman. I deserve better than this, but I'm a janitor in this whole museum devoted to this guy. <laughs> and then this becomes like a horror movie. One night, while he's doing janitorial work after dark, he's doing it near these statuettes of the Legion of Superheroes that Superman brought from the future. And now I look back and I think, you know, this is sort of weird that 10 centuries before the Legion comes about, people on Earth know about them in the 30th century. But anyway, these statuettes were made with this special process. They like focused a sort of beam on the actual legionnaires to create these miniature copies of them, statuettes of them. But what nobody realized was it also duplicated their powers. So there's a storm raging outside, and a bolt of lightning reaches into the museum and hits this table with the statuettes and bathes Meech in its energy, and he becomes the composite Superman. And he ends up basically trying to take over the world. He builds his own sort of fortress of solitude with a huge statue of himself grasping the world, the globe in his hands. And the only reason that Superman and Batman survived this Is that he's got them captured. He's going to fly them into a major city and then reveal their secret identities. And all of a sudden, abruptly, the energy charge that he got from the lightning begins to wear off. So he flees, he goes back to the museum, but he hasn't gotten enough power to shoot a lightning land lightning bolt at the statuettes. And so not only does he lose his powers, he loses his memory of being the composite Superman. And the story ends with him just being this resentful janitor again. I think from the way I described this, you can see how unusual a story this was. It's also proof that those people who, like, make fun of the Weisinger era and Superman and say it's all juvenile stuff, this was pretty good. This reminds me, in retrospect, more of a Marvel story.
0: I see. So do you feel that Mort Weisinger was a good editor?
1: I think he had ups and downs. I think that there are some real classics like this one that came out of his reign, But most of the stuff he did is trivial and forgettable and juvenile and silly. Which is why there's such a backlash against it. But it is that true that in the Silver Age, Weisinger presided over this huge expansion of the Superman mythos coming up with Supergirl and Crypto and Brainiac and Candor and the Phantom Zone and all the Legion. These are all enduring achievements. I should say that I found out years later that Composite Superman was written by the science fiction writer Edmund Hamilton. And the artist was, of course, Kurt Swan, the definitive Superman artist for the Silver Age. Oh, and I should also say that I've subsequently found out that during the Silver Age, Weisinger brought Jerry Siegel back to write some stories like Superman's Return to Krypton, some of which is like that one, are indeed enduring classics. So did that lead
2: you into being interested in Superman and the Legion and the worlds that were established from that? And that's what got you hooked in terms of that universe
1: building continuity aspect of comics? Yes, it did. Starting with that, I started buying the entire Weisinger line of Superman comics. Superman, action, adventure, world's finest, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, and I'm forgetting one. Well, anyway, I've got the whole Superman line of books from Weisinger. And yes, I did notice, and it did appeal to me, that they had a continuity that extended through all the books and that they were, every so often I see references to like Batman, previous stories of the Legion or other characters. And, you know, nothing really changed usually in a, well, like a Superman story. They usually return to the status quo at the end of the story. But I was aware that this whole mythos and I, there were occasionally text features, which I think would probably written by E. Nelson-Gridwell, that would explain like things like different kinds of kryptonite and so forth. So, yes, I found that very appealing.
2: At some point, did you start to think, hey, I would like to do this. I would like
1: to be involved with this when I grew up. Or was that way off? We're getting way ahead of ourselves here. The next step is that when it's early 1966, and when the Batman TV show came on the air. And by coincidence or not, the issue of Batman that came out that month had the Riddler on the cover and the Riddler was in the first episodes. It said that spinning Riddler with Carmen Infantino. No, this is Riddler by Gil Kane. This is the second Riddler story in the Silver Age. And I already knew who Batman was from World's Finest, said I liked Batman. So I decided, okay, I'll try the Batman comics. And this is how I discovered the Julius Schwartz edited line of comics. So I went on from Batman and Detective to Flash, still done by John Dream and Gardner Fox, and Carmine and Bettino. And Green Lantern, still done by John Dream and Gil Kane and Adam and Hoffman still written by Gardner Fox. And Flash was my favorite of these books. My first issue of Flash was The Gauntlet of Supervillains, which is a Flash running between six of his colorful rogues gallery foes. And again, I must have some sort of interest in lists because I thought, well, oh, look at all these great-looking characters. And the story by Broom and Infantino was really good. I realized not when I reread it years later how a lot of it was tongue-in-cheek humor. Because the story ends basically with, you know, oh, it's not just the six villains on the cover. It's like turns out that super gorilla Rod is behind all this. So you get seven of the classic Flash villains, and the humor comes at the end when Rod is defeated because he gets beaten up by a female gorilla. He's been sharing a cage with at the zoo, and that gives Flash the opening to defeat him. But at the time, I took all of this seriously. But I do think that one of the good things about the Silver Age Flash that most people do not get is that they work as serious fantasy adventure but there's usually a subtle comedy element in it like Captain Cold's crush on various women or stories like in which the Mirror Master goes to a self-help class to try to figure out if they can teach him how to make better plans to defeat the Flash and the trickster the trickster's hilarious the trickster is outright funny but it's like they often do this subtle humor and I think too many people look at Silver Age DC stories and say, oh, they're silly. But no, I think that Schwartz and Drummond Fox knew what they were doing when they were putting humor in the stories. So the humor was probably for older readers or for themselves. So then, again, this is still in 66, I had seen in a barbershop one issue of Spider-Man by Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. And it didn't impress me that much. I think this was a story involving the rhino. But that was my first exposure to Marvel. But what really got me hooked on Marvel was in the fall of 66, probably in response to the Batman TV show's huge success, it was the Marvel superheroes animated show. Now, animated should be in quotes because it had minimal animation. Obviously, it had to be done at the speed of light to debut in the fall right after the Batman show had debuted the previous winter. But what they did was they ran five days a week. Each day was a different superhero, Captain America, Iron Man. Thor, Samarita, and the Hulk. And what they did was they took stories directly from the comic books. So it wasn't just Stan and his collaborated stories. They also used the artwork, you know, doing minimal animation on it. By this time, I was going to Thayer Academy in Braintree, Massachusetts, a high school. And there was a store in Braintree within walking distance of school. Sometimes I would walk down there after school ended. And And again, it was sort of like a Marvel pop store, and they had Marvel comics. Now, I had never seen Marvel comics on sale before this. I don't know whether it was some sort of distribution problem in the Boston area or what, but I saw a bunch of Marvel comics, so I picked up a batch and loved these even more than the show. And in some cases, I remember the first. And then I found a store in Milton that also carried Marvel comics. And in some cases, I remember what the first issue of a particular series was, like, I got a Tales of Suspense, which had a Stan and Colin story, Iron Man versus the Mandarin. And in the back, a Cap story by Stan and Jack Kirby with Cap versus Batrock the Leaper. And this is the one with a famous page where Stan says in a caption at the beginning, let's not put dialogue in here, let's just let Jack go. And it's like a nine-panel grid of this amazingly dynamic fight between Cap and De- Batrock. And there had been nothing like that at all that I had ever seen at DC. Similarly, the Colin story, the front of the issue, Colin had this sort of style that was, it strikes me now as being influenced by the great illustrators in magazines or comic book artists like Alex Raymond, because it was very realistic, very illustrative. Similar to Kirby stuff. I'd never seen, even the Carmine Infantino and Gil Kane stories that I'd seen at DC, I'd never seen anything with this much dynamism, this much energy. So again, I got hooked on Marvel. Now, the next phase is that, and I think by this point I'd already started doing this, that Julie Schwartz had letter columns, and I started writing long, writing letters to his various books, and I rather quickly became one of his regular letter writers. Now, this was at, what, age 12, 13, something like that? I was in high school, so I was older than that. Okay. We're talking 66, so I would have been 14.
0: And so you're talking about the Flashgrams, JLA mailroom, and all that, right? Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji.
1: And I'm Michelle. And
2: this... Under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States, he was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast.
1: Right. So that pretty soon it was like they were the four most regularly published writers in Julie Schwartz's letter columns were Guy H. Lillian III, Irene Vartanoff, who has since become a friend of mine, Mike Friedman, and me. And sometimes they do like two pages of letters and I would get an entire page devoted to one of my letters. I wrote very long pages. And this is a start of really of my becoming a comics critic and comics historian because I'm commenting on what I liked about these stories.
2: Now, were you able to buy anything you wanted? It sounds like you were
1: reading a lot of books. There wasn't that many. It was seven Superman titles. And then when I went to the seven Julie Schwartz titles, I pretty much gave up the Weisiger titles. Oh, I see. And keep up. And I continued reading the Julie Schwartz books after I discovered Marvel. But Marvel wasn't printing that much stuff back then. That was when they were still under distribution restrictions. So there were maybe like 10 new comics a month and then a couple of reprint books. So it wasn't that much. But since I had so few comics, I would read the DCs and Marvels I liked over and over and over. And I soon started writing to the Marvel letter comms as well. And they didn't publish me as often, but they did a lot.
0: So there were other fans that kind of looked at it, a lot of the comics like you did to put it in a continuity. And I think of like Mark Grunwald as an example of somebody who was reading a lot of the comics and also kind of cataloging it mentally. And I think he manifested that in his Omniverse fanzine, which he did with Roger Stern and some other contributors who Roger was also doing Charlton fanzines. Were these fanzines like Omniverse or the Charlton ones, were you reading those? Were those an influence on you at all?
1: No, no. In the 60s, I was completely unaware of fanzines. I'd seen the names of other readers in the letter columns, but I had no contact with any of them. The contact started, now we jump to 1975. Oh, I should say that there's a point in the late 60s when I gave up on the DCs. This was a point at which Fox and had were leaving and I was just getting, had left. I was just tired. I thought the DCs were just not as good as they used to be. But I kept up with the Marvels. And then around 1970, when DC started to revitalize itself with things like the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Green Lantern, and Denny and Julie Schwartz's revamp of Superman and Denny's and Julie's revamp of Batman, that I got into DCs again. But anyway, so I was still in the early 70s, I was still writing letters regularly to DC and Marvel. And in 75, I already moved to New York for attending Columbia University from 69 to 73. And then I came back in 75 to go to grad school of Columbia. And when I moved to New York this time, I got a letter from Bonnie Wilford, who was the mail editor at Marvel. And she said that she and her boyfriend wanted to meet me. Her boyfriend was a writer who had just taken over the revival of the X-Men. So I met Ronnie and Chris Claremont for lunch. They would then invite me to a, Chris gave a party, that' invite me. And I started slowly but surely to meet lots of Marvel pros. And before I really started meeting other Marvel fans, it was, I'd say, late 70s when I started going to things like the comic book conventions in New York, basically the creation con back then, that I started meeting people like Peter Gillis and Melanie Crawford and other people who were basically fans of Marvel and DC Comics and who would eventually become professionals.
2: I want to go back to the college stuff a little bit, because I'm interested in that. What was your major at Columbia undergrad, and what were you thinking of doing? I thought I was going to be a teacher. Ah. And well, you became a teacher?
1: Well, uh, in the sense that when you write essays about comics history, you are, in a sense, teaching your audience. I mean, I have done some teaching. When I was a grad student, they had me teaching a remedial course in English composition to college students at Columbia. I did tutorial work at in Fashion Institute of Technology. And years later, I taught a course in comics criticism at NYU, but not enough people signed up for a second year. So that just faded away. In many ways, I feel like I have mixed feelings about how I got into comics because I think that it's quite possible that I wouldn't have gotten into comics if it hadn't been for the Silver Age DCs and Marvels, which was so inventive and sent so much energy and appeal. That's what got me into being a comics fan. There was a dinner that I went to years ago, a bunch of fellow Marvel pros, and at this dinner, John Byrne looked around at all of us and said, we're all lifers, which meant we're in this for life. Now, it'd be nice if Marvel DC realized this and would offer me work, or offer work to some of the other people who are at that dinner. But it's true that we are so devoted to this medium and to the superhero genre that that was what our lives were going to be devoted to.
2: That's a good segue in terms of superhero genre. When DC started to experiment and they did things like Batlash and when Ditko went over and was doing Creeper and Hawk and Dove and things were getting a little bit different at DC, were you
1: following those or did you not really care for that. It doesn't following cool on the ones you just mentioned. For some reason, I was just sort of weary of venturing beyond familiar territory. The books that I was reading in this period were, again, the Julie Schwartz books, which I thought were a lot of revolutionary stuff was going on. Again, what Denny and Julie were doing in revamping Superman, the fact that Julie and Denny and Neil Adams revamped Batman. Julie actually has revamped Batman twice. He did it with the new look Batman in the early 60s, which is the first Batman comics I saw. And then after the Batman TV show flamed out and the sales plunged again, then Julie and Denny and Niels came up with the what became the Dark Knight version of Batman, the grim obsessed Avenger. And so it's around 1970 that the Batman that we now know from comics and movies and TV really originated. And that was, in fact, Julie and Denny and Neil trying to update. Batman from 1939, the very earliest form of Batman, tried to recapture that atmosphere and bring it into the present. And I also liked what Julie taking over and revitalizing Superman. Not so much what was going on with other classic Julie books like Flash and Green Lantern, but it wasn't until years later that I went back and I looked at the Ditko stuff. Right now, this may be jumping ahead again, but before the quarantine, the last several years, I've been trying to spend a day a week at the Columbia University Library. Now, even like five years ago, because I'm an alumnus, so I could get to use the library for free. And only like five years ago, they only had three books relating to comics. But my friend Karen Green, who's a librarian there, has built a collection that's now well over 10,000 volumes. Yes, we love Karen. I'm friends with Karen as well. Right. And so this is one way in which I've gotten to read comics that I missed in years past or that I was too young to read or that was before my time. For example, I've read a lot of EC comics there. And I remember looking for weeks and weeks for Batlash because it said in the catalog they had a Batlash collection and it finally showed up in the stacks and I devoured it. I think that if I'd been aware of Batlash in the 70s, I probably wouldn't have been interested anyway because I wasn't into westerns. That was the result of another one of my interests, which is film when I got to Columbia as a college student, I started getting interested in film and film history. And even though I would never liked Westerns before that, I thought that they were this sort of macho genre that had no appeal to me. When I started watching classic John Ford and Howard Hawks Westerns, I started to like the genre. So now I have no prejudice against it. So I was eager to find bathlass and track it down.
2: Yeah, Hawks is my favorite director probably, and Rio Bravo may be my favorite film of all time. Good choice. I went to USC grad school for film critical studies, so we have a lot we could talk about in terms of that if you only had the time. I enjoy your Facebook page very much for what you talk about.
1: Well, feel free to give me a call anytime. Okay. If you we'll want to do that. talk about this. Well, now that I'm trapped in the house between the quarantine and my health problems, I welcome phone calls from friends. I think the next step in the history of my career is that once I started meeting comic book pros and other major comic book fans, this is when I met Mark Grunewald. Okay, this is 1975, right? After 75. 75 is when I met Claremont. Grunewald was from 76 to 77. I'm just guessing here, off the top of my head. He was standovers at first, but then we started to become friends and I think that even though Mark didn't have the kind of academic background that I had, that he was basically had this sort of scholarly instincts. He and his father had written this treatise on reality and comic book fiction. That's not the real title, but that's more of a paraphrase of the title, in which they were exploring how parallel worlds work in comics. Mark was also a huge DC fan. Gardner Fox and Julie Schwartz were idols to him. But he had ended up at Marvel, and he really liked Marvel too. And this is when he brought me on board to work on Omniverse, which was his fanzine that was actually sort of scholarly itself, unlike most fanzines, because he was interested in exploring time travel and parallel dimensions and other dimensions in DC and Marvel Comics. And he actually set up rules of time travel, which when Mark was there, Marvel followed to some extent, and which now everybody at Marvel and DC ignores or is just unaware of. So I only got really to work on one issue of Omniverse, because there were only two issues that came out. We started working on a third issue, but that never happened. And every so often, I'm still friends with Mark's wife, Catherine. Every so often I say to her, you know, it would be great if we could relaunch Omniverse, but it never seems to go anywhere. And I'm at the point where I'm not going to do this for free like I did back then. I'm looking for some sort of means of making money off my comics knowledge. But Anyway, so I was working with Mark on Omniverse, and We were becoming friends. And then when Louise Simonson left staff at Marvel as the X-Men editor, her assistant Anne Lucenti was promoted in her stead. Anne, at that point, she had never been a comics fan. And the idea of Mark and Grumald and Ralph Macchio, two editors at Marvel, well, I guess they may have still been assistant editors at that point. Their idea was that Anne needed an assistant who had a thorough grounding in Marvel history to help her out. So they recommended me to Anne to be an assistant editor. And Chris Claremont, of course, loved the idea. And so I got to be an assistant editor. Uh, I stayed a little over a year as assistant editor working on X-Men and New Mutants, back when Chris was collaborating with Bill Sienkiewicz Star Wars. And then I ended up leaving because I wasn't quite getting along with Anne, although now Anne and I are great friends. And, you know, whenever we run into each other, I get a big hug. It's a kiss. It's not a run-hug, it's a kiss. But what really was happening was that Mark, who's now an editor, was starting up the original official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Oh, and before that, DC was starting what became the Who's Who in the DC Universe.
2: Yeah, I want to go back a little bit, Peter, because I think there's a gap here. Because what year are you talking about at Marvel? We're now talking about the early 80s. Okay, so let's talk for a few minutes about, in like 1982, you were working as a columnist for Comics Journal. The first thing I read that you did was a review of the Eisner book, the hardcover that had come out, and then you were
1: writing on various book reviews and other things on a consistent basis. I don't consider that being a columnist because that implies a regular column. Yeah, you're right. On the 70s and early 80s, before I started going pretty much full-time for work directly for DC and Marvel, yes, I was getting into fanzines, and I wrote for the Comics Journal off and on. I wrote a whole lot of lead stories for Amazing Heroes. There was one magazine called Comic Feature that friends of mine were editing, and I did some writing for that.
2: Now, were you doing interviews at that point, too? I know you did several with Steve Gerber, so I want to talk about that a little bit before you started actually working.
1: Amazing Hero Store pieces were almost always interviews. I would interview whoever was coming up with a book that they wanted to feature that month, and I'd talk to the creators. And they also did, like, previews of the coming year in comics. The whole issue, be pre- previews of the coming year, so where there'd be short pieces on every Marvel and DC comic. And I enjoyed doing those, because I got the chance to talk to loads of people for those, because I ended up writing, like, 10 of those little previews. And also, I guess my... High point in this period of doing interviews was when I did a two-volume book called The X-Men Companion, which were extended interviews with everybody I could find who had worked on The X-Men at that point. You know, I didn't get Stan, but I did get Roy Thomas, and I got Len Wein, and I got Chris Claremont, and John Byrne, and Dave Cockrum. Every so often, somebody will write to me and mention that they feel like The X-Men Companion. I don't know if I still have copies of The X-Men Companion. But I know I have copies of all these Amazing Heroes issues.
2: And did you work directly under Gary Groth or Kim Thompson? Who were the people you got to know from that area, from the Comics Journal?
1: I got to know both Gary and Kim. I'd even get invited to parties at their place. when They then had a big house in Connecticut before they moved to the West Coast. Kim was in charge of Amazing Heroes, so I'd be dealing with Kim on that. Gary was in charge of the Comics Journal. But really, it's like, I basically just did the articles and set them in. We never had, like, conferences about them. And they always seemed satisfied with my work.
2: And did you know the other people that were working there,
1: like Decker and Rick Marshall and the other columnists? I knew Dirk Dwight Decker. He's still a Facebook friend, as is Rick Marshall. But I didn't know Rick Marshall from Fantagraphics. I knew Rick Marshall from when he was running Epic at Marvel. Ah, I see.
0: Yeah, so that was 1980, and then he left that, and then Archie took over, yeah.
1: Because in these years, before I started doing actual work for Marvel in DC, I would be visiting the offices a lot. I mean, I now realize what a golden time it was, in retrospect, when I was in comics professionally, because, well, I still am, it's just that I don't get work now. <laughs> but it's like, whatever reason, I am over retirement age, and new generations have taken over at both companies. But it was a period when, Marvel and DC were both in New York, which is a big deal. So you could work for both. You could take the subway from one office to the other. And there's a huge comic book community in New York because both of the major companies were here. And it was before a lot of comics professionals started to spread out over the country because the Internet made it much easier to live elsewhere than New York and still work in comics. And so this was good for making contacts, for getting to know people. I used to have a reputation for knowing everybody in comics because I'd also in the eighties started going to go into the San Diego con, for example. And it's also was a great time because the baby boom generation who had grown up on the Silver Age comics was really just coming into its own. Now they were getting it to be in charge as editors or as writers of major series, get to launch projects to go in different directions of the comics of the past, especially in the mid-'80s, you know, the period of Dark Knight and Watchmen and so forth. And also was a period when my comics career, people will find this unusual, but I almost never had to ask for work. I was always invited. Mark invited me to work at Marvel. Marv Wolfman and Len Wein invited me to work on the Who's Who. Even when I transitioned to writing books for companies like Abrams and DK about Marvel history, again, I'd be recommended by someone at Marvel or I'd be invited. And I love those days when people were inviting me all the time and kept me steadily in work for the last two decades of the 20th century. Did you work at DC before Marvel? Yes. And I just realized that this is another thing I should do to fill the gap. In the very start of the 80s, Marv and Len were planning to do what became Crisis on Infinite Earths. And they were also planning to do a series called History of the DC Universe, which years later turned into this two issue thing that George Perez drew. And they decided that they needed someone to research DC's history so that they could write these projects. So they hired me to come in twice a week and go through the DC library and take notes on Character appearances and issues in which major concepts were introduced. And I think they really underestimated how long this would take. They thought this would take like three months. It took a year. And by that time, I was going in three times a week. But yes, I read through the entire DC library as it stood in the early 80s. And that was amazing because I was getting to read all these golden age comics that I never thought I'd see. They had a bunch of Fawcett, Captain Marvel comics that I never thought I'd get to see.
0: So they had that in their archives, even the Fawcett stuff, because they bought the rights. Okay, that's awesome.
2: So how did that make you feel as you learned all that history and then saw it all jettisoned to some degree with Crisis?
1: You feel that was a good move on DC's part? I don't think so. I could see the argument that things that, for example, in Superman's history had become dated like Superboy, for example, the classic Weisinger Superboy. Now I think back to it, I think, okay, if you have this small town, in the Weisinger days, they never specified where Smallville was. I mean, now it's generally assumed to be in Kansas, and I think that's because of the Donna Superman movie, although they actually shot the Kansas sequences in Canada. But if I think about it now, I think if Metropolis was supposed to be on the East Coast, there was at one point, I don't know, maybe Nelson Dredwell came up with this. Well, there's one point at which DC established that Metropolis was in, I think, Delaware, and that Gotham City was in New Jersey. So they were close to each other and they were also close to New York City. But anyway, if I think about it, the wise of the Superboy, Smallville might have been in like the countryside Pennsylvania or upstate New York, or maybe in Long Island. There was no sign that it was in the Midwest. But anyway, if you had a teenage superhero with powers as great as Superboy, turn up in a small town, wherever it is, the meteor is going to descend on that town. It's a huge story. And how in a small town with a limited number of people are you going to keep your secret identity secret? I don't know if that was their reason for getting rid of the traditional Superboy, but I can understand how you might need to revise Superman's history to deal with this. But I think for the most part, Crisis was sort of upsetting to me because they're killing off characters. And at this point, DC was claiming, if we kill someone off in Crisis, they're dead for good, which seems naive now. Because now, any character who gets killed, that doesn't mean anything at DC and Marvel anymore because any character who gets killed will get brought back either by the same writer and editor or by a different writer-editor team later on.
0: Right, two years later, usually, yeah.
1: Right. But at that point, I said, why are we killing off Supergirl? Why are we killing off the Silver Age Flash? I like these characters. Even some of the minor ones, like, why are you killing off my favorite Flash villain, the Mirror Master, for no reason at all, just as a throwaway? And I also think that DC's continual revamps are a mistake. It's like, don't get too attached to anyone's story at DC anymore because wait a few years and they'll undo it. I mean, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was when Scott Snyder came up with his old basic version of Batman Year One. I thought if any storyline is like untouchable, it's like Batman Year One, which they've been doing sequels to, that they've been reprinting forever, which everybody agrees is great, but they undid it. Or I understand that they've also, in Swamp Thing, undone Alan Moore's stories. How can you do that? And so it's like, I'm much happier about Marvel that miraculously, over the years, is still kept its continuity intact for the most part. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah. That's
2: what I really wanted to explore with you a little bit, and I'm glad you brought it up, is the difference between the DC universe and the Marvel universe, specifically in the context of continuity. And even though Marvel seems ridiculous, sometimes in some of the directions it goes, it doesn't jettison it. Whereas DC, starting with Crisis, but then accelerating with New 52 and all of that becomes insulting to people like us who actually care about that continuity going
1: forward. It's also that the audience has changed over the years, because I remember that there used to be writers, you'd ask them, why did you basically repeat a storyline from a few years back with this character? And they'd say, well, it's because most of the audience turns over every few years. And people like you, who have been reading forever and who remember all this stuff, you're the minority. But look, in the world of comics that we've got now, it's mostly adults who read them. And there's so much reprinting of old stories. Libraries, not just Columbia, but libraries around the country, like the South Orange Library nearby where I live has a comics collection. So these old stories live on in libraries. They live on in reprints. You can go on comicsology, and you can get stuff going all the way back to the 30s. And so it's like people are aware of this, can easily become aware of these past stories. And they can easily become aware that say the Jack Kirby Eternals are way superior to the most recent Eternals series, not Neil's, the one after that, that Marvel has done, to give an example. Or they know what the high points of the Fantastic Four history are, or for history. So I don't think it's wise to just dismiss stories that are older than a few years, because there are people who nowadays, though I think there are lots of people who know these stories and read them and like them. Now, The difference between DC and Marvel continuity, it used to be that DC continuity, they had it. Like I said, I was fascinated by the whole mythos, the rising of Superman, but story for the most part, the continuity never advanced. It was rare that you got an event that changed the status quo, like the introduction of Supergirl. Now DC continuity is totally malleable. I mean, you might have thought that when they did crisis on infinite earths, okay, we've set our universe in order, or at least the way Oh, that's another thing. One of the explanations for Crisis, why they did Crisis, was that supposedly they thought that readers were confused by all the multiple Earths. But I've long contended for years that the only way you can appreciate Crisis is if you understand the multiple Earths, because it makes no sense if you don't know about Earth 1 and Earth 2 and Earth 3 and so forth. And they have like virtually every character in the DC universe show up in that series. So it's It's actually really complicated. And it shows that Marvin Len and Dick Giordano may have thought that the multiverse was too confusing and they had to get rid of it. But in fact, I think the success of Crisis shows that people understood and liked the multiverse.
2: I think with that, it changed DC in an interesting way because bringing in the Justice Society as part of the regular continuity, not an alternate world, gave a legacy aspect to it that I think they did a good job on
1: to some degree. There are good things and bad things about that. There are good aspects to the fact that you had One Earth where the Justice Society appeared before the Justice League. The unfortunate thing is that you could no longer do stories about the Golden Age versions of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. But anyway, now DC continuity is totally valuable. I remember, for example, that Jeff Johns wrote a series about that was supposed to be setting out Superman's origin story, a definitive new version. And, of course, this meant that for quite some time now, DC had to understand the deal, I think. They had not only been undoing things from Crisis, bringing back Supergirl and Crypto, for example, but also they had been John Byrd's revamp of Superman was pretty much completely undone by that point. And so Jeff Johns wrote this Superman origin miniseries, which was supposed to be the definitive retelling. And then just several months later, Grant Morrison, when they did the new 52, did a new origin for Superman. It didn't even wait a year. And so these sort of things drive me crazy. Marvel, on the other hand, they have for the most part kept their continuity intact part of the game at Marvel is, if you make a big change in the series, that you find a way to put it back the way it was. I was very impressed, for example, that Dan Slott in Amazing Spider-Man did this years-long story arc in which Peter Parker became what you'd never think Peter Parker would become. He became rich, famous, inventor, and entrepreneur. And supposedly, according to one story, had more money than Tony Stark. So Dan got a couple of years of good stories out of this, and then he found a way to undo it, believably, and have Peter go back to the impoverished nobody that we're used to. That's the great thing about Marvel. They keep the continuity intact so that the Stan and Jack stories, for example, are still a vital part of the continuity. They are still drawn upon for, for new stories. Like, again, Slot with Fantastic Four, I like the way he's con- – and with Iron Man, I like the way he's continually doing callbacks to classic stories of the past while doing new contemporary stuff with the characters.
2: Although, Peter, I'd say Marvel is also infamous
1: for doing it badly sometimes. And I think of the Mary Jane. The thing is to do it well. I mean, Marvel age of comics is now, what, nearly 60 years old. You know, you're going to have mistakes during that period, and you're going to have people doing things well. And you just have to hope that the things that are done well have more enduring impact and that the mistakes eventually get undone
0: doesn't continuity kind of reduce in its meaning with the illusion of change that started to kind of happen in like the early 70s of Marvel where the characters didn't age as fast. And so then continuity almost, it starts becoming a little, and I'm a continuity guy, but it becomes a little more meaningless because they grow a lot in the 60s, like they're graduating high school and starting college. But then after that, it seems like the age kind of, it's like exponentially flattening out where they're kind of staying the same age now, but then it's the continuity still going. It gets a little strange. The sense of time gets more and more inflated and warped over time.
1: Well, a couple of things here to set this in context. One is that when Stan and Jack and the others were creating the silver age Marvel comics, they had already been in the comics business since the forties or earlier, I guess it's Kirby's case. And They had seen so many ups and downs in the comics business and then seen so many series that they'd worked on, flourish for a time and then go away. So I don't think that when they, in the 60s, Stan and Jack and company really realized that these characters that they'd come up with were going to last over a half century and more. So that's why Stan and Ditko, for example were sort of moving Spider-Man's life along at a good clip. In the 60s, they had him graduate high school. They had him go to college. Probably the last sign of that is when Stan suggested that Peter and Mary Jane get married. The other thing is, when they got to the 70s and a new generation coming in to write the comics, I think they began to realize that these books could go on indefinitely. And so they had to slow things down because nobody wanted Spider-Man to get too old. I don't want the characters to age in real time. There's a series, a really nice series, that recently Marvel published, called Spider-Man Life Story, in which Spider-Man starts his career in 1962 and ages in real time from decade to decade. So he's a senior citizen by the final issue, kind of the present. And similarly, I recently was pointed to a Fantastic Four annual that Carl Kiesel wrote years ago, in which Ben Grimm travels to a parallel world and finds out that the Fantastic Four there started their careers in 1961 and then they're now middle-aged. And this was a story that was done in the late 90s. And Ben is just sort of amazed by this because he says, we weren't even around in 1961. And uh, this is Kiesel having some fun with the way Marvel time works. And it goes very slowly. Now, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to work differently because you have real people playing these characters. And that's why in the Last Avengers movie, some of them actually get written out. Two of them die, one of them... I assume everybody who watches this has seen The Avengers end game by now. Well, anyway, they get rid of Tony Stark and the Black Widow and Captain America in various ways. And now maybe, for all I know, they plan to introduce a new guy as Iron Man sometime in the future. Or maybe 10 or 20 years from now, they'll just reboot the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe so they can cast a new actor as Tony Stark. I don't know. But in the comics, most people who read the comics now, were not around in the 60s to read them in the Silver Age. So if you had the characters age in real time, you know, by this time, most of the characters in the Silver Age would be retired and you'd have new people in those roles probably. And I don't know. I want to read about Tony Stark and Steve Rogers and so forth. I want to read the originals. And one of the things about, if you're a superhero comics fan, and you're not talking about DC where they do a reboot every two seconds, One of the things about Marvel is you just have to accept it as a convention of the genre that you have these characters with 50 or 60 years of adventures that somehow have to be crammed in Marvel time into 10 to 15 years. And you just have to accept that. And if it helps, not every single story has enduring value. You know, your typical, say, web of Spider-Man story is not going to be referred to in a new Spider-Man story.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, so you can kind of take those out. So, okay, so let's go back to your history. I want us to kind of make sure we cover. So when you were doing the work at DC, then you were talking about Mark Grunewald inviting you over to Marvel. So did you work for both at the same time doing the scholarly archival work or did you just jump from DC and go to Marvel and do that?
1: When I was reading through the DC library, that's the only professional work I was doing, unless you count the interviews or fanzines, for example. But I think that the Who's Who and the first version of Marvel Universe did overlap, yes. There were years when I was going back and forth between the two companies.
0: So were you also then reading all the old Marvel comics as well as like Timely and Atlas stuff while you were working with Marvel then?
1: No, because DC has a very complete library. Apparently, I've heard that recently they had a big theft. I don't know if that's true or not, but for the most part, they had a really complete collection in Bond volumes that went back to the 30s. So I could read things like more Dr. Occult stories and more fun comics. Marvel, on the other hand, notoriously had a bad library. There are loads of ones missing because they've been stolen over the years. And they certainly had almost nothing before 1961. It wasn't really until I started going to the Columbia Library the last several years that I've been able to read a lot of Timely stuff. And of course, now Marvel, I don't know what's going on at Marvel these days. Oh, I only know as much as the general public knows for the most part. But Marvel has been reprinting a lot of stuff from Timely or Atlas. And a lot of it is available in hard copies, so I see them in the Columbia Library. Or there's a lot of vintage Timely and Atlas stuff that you can get on comiXology in digital form. So I expect that what's happened is, I know that in my final days at Marvel on staff, that they were starting to digitize, instead of relying on collections of stats of past stories, they are starting to digitize everything. So it was available by computer. And I think they went on to somehow find stuff that they didn't have in the library, like the Timely and Atlas stuff and digitize that too.
0: So when you were contributing to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe for 80s and 90s, you were basically reading over old comics going back to 1961 and kind of compiling biographies. Is that basically what you... Yes. Were doing?
1: And of course, a lot of this stuff I didn't have to look
0: up. I knew it. Yeah, you knew it already. Yeah. So then because it was your generation anyway. So Then was Jim Shooter pretty instrumental in pushing the Marvel Universe handbooks?
1: Originally, Jim Shooter wanted to do something like trading cards with statistics for how strong characters were, for example. And Mark managed to talk him into turning it into an encyclopedia of Marvel characters. Like I say, Mark didn't have an academic background like comparable to mine, but he was a scholar by nature. I see.
0: So then, how did you guys establish, I've always wondered this, how many tons that the Hulk can bench press versus Thor versus Spider-Man? Who was coming up with those numbers? I think ultimately it was Mark. Okay, Mark Grunewald did. That's interesting. Okay.
1: This is a long time ago. It's possible. I think that Mark might have done this for the big characters like the Hulk and Thor, with lesser characters like supervillains. It's possible that I came up with a lot of those. I don't remember because I'd look at the guidelines that they had established for the main heroes, and I'd say, "Well, okay, how does this villain match up to this hero?" You know, because I'd see fights between them. So I figured that the abomination has to be pretty close to the Hulk in strength, right?
0: Yeah, right, right. Because, yeah, I remember reading that. I'll never forget those numbers. Like, Captain America can bench press 800 pounds. I mean, for some reason, these numbers are burned into my mind.
1: And some people didn't like that. Some people just didn't like the character's powers being specified. But I think Mark thought it was important so that people knew that Captain America was not as strong as Spider Man, who is not as strong as Iron Man, who is not as strong as Thor, who is equal to the Hulk, except that somebody came up with the idea that the Hulk, based on the fact that the better he gets, the stronger he gets, that if you get Tulk really enraged, he can go over the 100-ton limit.
0: Yeah, the 100-ton. So you said there were guidelines. Who came up with this
1: 100-ton, 10-ton? Were there guidelines set out for you guys for the main I use guidelines because, again, this is a long toggle. I don't remember, but I think that I came into Marvel Universe handbook with the second issue. So that pretty much wrote the whole first issue himself. And so he was already establishing strength levels of these characters. So I was basically just following his lead.
0: Okay, on Mark's lead. So then, now, Tom DeFalco, was he any sort of resource or contributed toward any of the Marvel Universe bios or anything?
1: No. Later on, he wrote some books for other publishers about Marvel, his characters. But no, he had nothing to do with it at the handbook at the time. And I went with the first three versions of the handbook. The original, the sort of deluxe version, which was longer, and then the loose leaf version, various update miniseries.
0: Now, how did you then start getting into the Marvel Saga in 1985, which you did with 1985 to 87, edited by Danny Fingeroth. Tell us about writing out the Marvel Saga, because I made a post about that recently.
1: I don't really recall how Marvel Saga originated, but I do recall that what happened is I would go over to Daddy's apartment on a regular basis and we'd discuss and work out what was going to happen in each issue of Marvel's Saga. And I was hoping it would go on forever. But in fact, eventually it was transferred to a different editor and it wasn't selling that well. So we had to wind up with the Galactus Trilogy, which is actually a good place to start because that brings the early years of Marvel to their high point. And uh, if I had to do it again, we had a limited budget on this, which is why it was mostly clip art. And I feel a little guilty about that because sometimes with the clip art, we'd actually alter the art like if it was a partial view of a character, we'd fill it out. And now I think tampering with Jack Kirby art is blasphemous.
0: That's awesome. Uh
1: I was happiest with Marvel Saga when we're able to do new pages. Like the first issue, I came up with the idea of, let's start this with, where are all these famous Marvel heroes just before Fantastic Four number one? And we had new art for that. And I remember later on, when we were doing the Angel's Origin, Danny and I agreed that the art on the original story was really weak. So we commissioned new art, and it was Bill Sankiewicz who ended up doing it, which was great. So the big thing about Marvel Saga was George Olszewski, who was sort of a pioneer of indexing comics, he had done a lot of indexes of Marvel comics, both on his own and later officially for Marvel. And so to some extent, he had figured out in the early years, which stories had happened before which other stories. But he didn't do a complete job. Like Usually it was like, if he was doing like Fantastic Four, oh, I don't know, Fantastic Four 30, he'd have an addendum at the end of the index. This character next appears in, this character next appears in. But he wasn't covering everything because he wasn't indexing every series at this point for Marvel. So what I had to do is read all these stories from the first, what, 1961 through 1965. Which is when the Galactus trilogy happens, and figure out which story happened when in relation to all the other stories. And sometimes you'd see that Stan would give you a good clue. Like there's Thor returning from a long story in Asgard, and he goes to Avengers Mansion and he meets Hawkeye and Scott, which a Quicksilver. So you know, this happened after the issue in which the new Avengers Caps Cookie Quintet Quartet got launched. But anyway, I had to figure this out. And what I did was I made out these calendars. And I was able to assign each story from 61 to 65 to a specific day of the year. And sometimes you'd have multiple stories on one day. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's possible to do anymore. For one thing, as you noted earlier, in the 60s, the characters still weren't aging in real time. But time moved more closely to real time back then. So I think it's possible yeah. to do that. But now, when you look back at nearly 60 years of Fantastic Four stories, and you realize they all have to fit within 10 to 15 years, I don't know if it's possible to do this anymore. Another thing I want to get, I really like the first issue. I like the whole series, the recent history of the Marvel Universe series. Mark Wade stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. I particularly liked the first issue, which was basically stuff that happened way before Fantastic Four number one, going all the way back to the creation of the universe and drawing in stories from all of these different sources and fitting them into a continuity. I really liked that. That was really well done. My only regret is that they never asked me to be a consultant on the book. Which makes no sense. I know. I mean I talked to people who have worked on Marvel Universe handbooks, more recent Marvel Universe handbook. I was just talking to one earlier this week and they loved the handbook that Mark and I was writing and really with the original handbook you know, I started working on it with issue two. And as the series went on, I was writing more of it than Mark was. And that's definitely true of the deluxe version. But so I will sign it out of mind, I guess.
0: So then the Marvel Universe Complete Encyclopedia of Marvel's Greatest Characters, we're dating that to about 1986-ish. How'd you get involved in that?
1: I think I was asked to work on it. By that point, I'd already been working on books from other publishers about Marvel characters in history. Like I say, there was a period when, for about 10 years, I was doing work for Marvel and DC directly. And then for the next 10, I was constantly being asked by people to write books for other publishers that Marvel had licensed the right to do official books about the characters in history. I got the first book, the Abrams book about Marvel that I wrote. I got that through Mark Gruenwald's recommendation. Oh, I should also say that, to fill in another gap in my history, that after Marvel's saga was finished. And there wasn't another who's who or Marvel Universe handbook being done at that point. That's when I went to Mark and said I was looking for work, something else to do, because I really liked working in comics and on comics history. And that's when he established the Marvel archivist position, which is basically somebody who would sit in the bound volume room and supervise to make sure that books didn't get stolen. But also, I would get to read through... Every Marvel book before went to press. So if I spotted some howling continuity error, we could get it fixed at the last minute. And this lasted for a little while. But then we had Marvel's dark days where it was all these different corporate moguls were fighting over ownership and the company was going bankrupt. And we had major downsizes that basically got rid of the entire baby boom generation at Marvel. And I survived the first one, but not the second. And they fired me without telling Mark they were going to do it.
0: I see. And we're going to get to that, I promise. So now, before we get to that, though, you were writing the Wolverine saga in the late 80s, 1989-ish, around 1989. And I had those four issues with Wolverine number 50. I had a Wolverine file in my house, and this was my definitive Wolverine history was that Wolverine saga. So
1: tell us about... Of course, there's a lot more Wolverine history that's been added since then.
0: There has, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure I- there has talking about after stories set more recently. I'm talking about his backstory.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They've added Waymar, which I've tracked that stuff down, and that's
1: fine. I don't like Wolverine George either, and I think there was Chris Claremont had a point in keeping it mysterious. Yeah, right. Yeah, they got a little weird with that. Too many writers and editors don't believe in the power of mystery.
0: Right. So then Marvel Saga, issue 22, Peter David wrote about the history of Peter and Mary Jane, and Marvel Saga had like Kind of a little change in style there. What happened with that situation? And were you not a Peter and Mary Jane fan as far as them being married?
1: I don't remember that at all.
0: Oh, okay. Well, Peter David wrote that issue is what I'm saying. He wrote issue 22. He did? Yeah, the history of Peter and Mary Jane.
1: I wasn't even aware of that at the time. No, okay. Interesting. That's interesting. I'm finding out about this decades later. (laughs) This must have been after Danny left as editor. Because Danny would not have commissioned an issue by somebody else without telling me or asking me.
0: That could have been. Yeah, that could have been.
1: Danny's remained a good friend
0: right through the present. Right through the present. Okay, so now let's go back to the dark days of Marvel. because And then Jim's going to go to the next section. Okay, first, what year did you leave Marvel exactly?
1: Oh, I don't remember. I'd have to look it up. But it's in the 90s.
0: Mid-90s. Mid-90s. Okay, like 95-ish. Okay.
1: And I was able to transition to writing these books, so that was okay. Right. I didn't like being thrown out. I didn't like all these people I knew being thrown out. I didn't like the direction that jo- Jemis and Quesada were initially embarked on with the books. Although I think after another 10 years, I started to see books by, you know, they're novel writers now, like Dan Slott, like Jason Aaron, like Nick Spencer, who I really like. But I didn't like what happened to a lot of the books right after Bill Jemis and Joe Soda took over. I never thought there was a point to the Ultimate Line. So when the, mm-hmm. the Ultimate Line finally got canceled, I thought, well, see, that was a waste of time, just like I thought. <laughs> the only good things that came out of the Ultimate Line, as far as I could tell, th- I mean, it was basically Marvel deciding, why don't we have an Earth 2? Yeah. The only good things were the African American Spider Man, which is a good idea and setting in motion the process that got Samuel L. Jackson to play Nick Fury.
0: Well, this is awesome, Peter. Thanks so much for discussing your personal and professional history with comic books. Join us next week as we discuss his contribution to the handbook of the Marvel Universe on our next Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson.